This morning we are, we are headed into our second week in the last leg of a year, almost year-long journey through what the Bible, so sections of the Bible that we know as the wisdom literature. The sections of the Bible that are there to help us be wise. They define wisdom for us as a kind of instinct or a skill at living in the world as it is. Seeing things as they are and responding in ways that make sense in light of what is. That's what wisdom is for and that's what these books are in the Bible for, to help us cultivate that kind of wisdom. James is the New Testament's best example of this sort of book. A book that's here to help us live in light of the truth of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And one of the things I warned you about last week, if you were here last week, we did a kind of overview, a flyover of the book, this little letter. One of the things I warned you about is that James hops around a lot. He jumps from subject to subject, sometimes in ways that are hard to follow, especially if you're a really linear kind of guy like I am. So if you listen to me preach at all, for very long at all, you have been subjected to this, like it or not. I, mean, I just think in a straight line. I need an A and a B and a C and a therefore D. But uh, a lot of people don't think that way, and James didn't. James was part of a culture that didn't often reason that way. The way James makes his points, and we're going to see this this morning in chapter 1, is more like a thread that, that comes up for a while and goes down into the fabric, comes up for a while, goes down into the fabric, up for a while, down back into the fabric. The thread and the fabric working together, each emerging and going back down at different times in different ways, but working together to make the points that he wants to make. And no passage in James shows this, this style of writing or communicating better than this first one. We're going to see several different subjects, what look like several different subjects, come up in the 18 verses we're going to unpack this morning. What we're going to do, though, is try to pull that thread so that we can see it. Because really, for all the differences in the different sections of the first 18 verses, there are a couple of threads that work together. And we, we're going to see them, pull on them, try to understand them together this morning. Those threads are the trials of life and the gifts of God. The trials of life and the gifts of God. I want to begin by reading the first 18 verses, and then, and then we'll dive into the text together this morning. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from James chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under, under trial, for when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This is God's word. You can be seated. Mention a couple of threads, working together, coming up, going down, coming up, going down, throughout these 18 verses. Those two threads are the trials of life and the gifts of God for the trials of life. We want to unpack what trials come out in these verses so that we're ready for them, so that we're taught to expect them. And then we'll look at what God has given to us to help us face those trials in a way that will leave us standing in the end. We'll start with the trials of life. I'm noticing three of them that come out of the first verses that we read together this morning. Three types of trial or test, that are coming for every one of us in these trials of life or where faith is cultivated, reinforced, established, or where faith will be shown to be empty, to be no faith at all. Here's the first one. The first kind of trial, which comes out in verses 2 through 4, it's the kind of trial that I'm calling hardship. Hard things in life. Things outside of us that happen to us. Now, I mentioned last week that in James, again, last week did a big picture overview of the book. One of the main things about the book that's unique, that you'll notice if you read the whole thing, is that it's full of commands. It's real low to the ground. It's about how you should do what you should do, when you should do it, in the twists and turns of life. Full of commands. There's 50 plus commands in the short five chapters of the book. Verse 2 gives us the first command, and it's a really surprising command. The command is to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy when you meet trials. Everybody I read, to to try to get some insight into this passage, uh, scholars of the the New Testament who have written about this letter, All of them suggested that that here, when he says trials, what he's talking about are the hard things in life. Circumstances outside of us that press in on us that we would rather not have in our lives. So it's a different kind of test from one we're going to come to a a little bit later on. A little bit later on, maybe you noticed as we read, the trial that is temptation to sin. Internal desire that gets that gets awakened and that runs out towards things God has told us not to do, that aren't good for us, that aren't pleasing to Him. That's an internal kind of test. Think about this first one as an external test. Things outside of you pressing in on you. If that's what he's talking about, we know what he means, but we don't necessarily share his view of what he means. 
We know what it is to face hard things in life. Every single one of us has things in our life right now that we would rather not have in our life, would rather not have to push through. There's two very surprising things about James's command here. James assumes these trials are normal, not unusual. The hard things in life are normal, not unusual. He assumes that. That's the first surprising thing. And then he, he tells us that these trials are a reason for joy, not frustration, not sorrow or resentment, but joy. Those two things are surprising, aren't they? First, that he assumes they're normal. He says, when you face or when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if, when. I think we're often surprised when things are hard in our life. I think we often assume that our hard things are different from what other people experience. A lot of times, it's really where we're being pressed in on, where we're facing some sort of struggle that we're most likely to compare ourselves to other people and what they're experiencing and to feel like what they have, they can't even imagine what it would be like to be going through what we're going through. We compare our lives to theirs and our, li- our trials feel unusual. We can feel like we're getting a raw deal. And, and it causes us to lock in on the hard things in, of our lives to sort of shrink down our perspective on, on our life and what defines it to the hard thing of the moment and to fight that hard thing like antibiotics fight disease. That's true, isn't it? Antibiotics fight disease. I'm not getting it. Yeah. Antibodies. So the body would be what they're fighting. Don't, I don't know. I don't, like, like, like a medicine that, that, that tries to get rid of something foreign that doesn't belong in the body. We see our hard things in our life as things that don't belong in our bodies and we attack them with medicine. That's what's normal. And we tend to compare the hard things we're experiencing now to this future when we're not going to have hard things in our life, don't we? We tend to think, boy, when I finish grad school, let me back it up even more. If I could just get into grad school, please, if I could just get into grad school, this is me, this is uh, the the 20-year-old version of Matt or whatever. If I could just get into grad school, my life would be great. Get into grad school. If I could just not be awful at grad school, my life would be great. Grad school is so hard. If I could just get a job after grad school, well, then I'd just be good. If my job wasn't so hard, what, if my job wasn't so exhausting, if I could just live the life of a retiree. And then I'm imagining what, if and when I ever retire. If my body wasn't breaking down on me, if my joints didn't hurt, if I could just enjoy the taste of food that I used to enjoy before disease and its treatment started to take away those tastes. Every chapter of every life has things in it that are hard. James assumes this. He says, when you face those trials, not if. And then he tells us, when you face those trials... You're supposed to count it as joy, not as a foreign object to pound away at with antibodies, as something to embrace. In fact, what he says, verses 3 and 4, that the testing of our faith, the hard things that make it tough to believe God is for us, 
Those things are what produce steadfastness or a perseverance, a stronger faith that that won't just fade away. In fact, he says in verse 4, steadfastness, if you let it have its full effect, here's what it means. Steadfastness will make you perfect. It'll make you complete. You won't lack anything. What do you lack? Confidence? You wish you were more confident? You wish you had more courage? Do you wish you had more compassion for other people, more empathy? Do you wish you had more patience? The testing of your faith produces a steadfastness that leaves you lacking no confidence, no compassion, no courage, no empathy, no patience, that leaves you lacking in no good thing. That makes you perfect. What James is saying is that we shouldn't resent the hard things in life, but embrace them. They are the key to growth. And they're the key to ensuring that you don't lack something you might not even realize you lack. They're the key to ensuring that you don't lack faith. Because you might be deceived. You might think you're with God only because your life is easy. You think God's made your life easy and you like that about Him. That might be what's passing for faith in your life and you won't know until hard things come and you count them joy because they are opportunities for God to prove himself to you. They are opportunities to purge away the things that death will one day purge out of your life and see if you have a faith that lasts. First kind of hardship or trial that we face is, or first kind of trial we face rather is Hardship in life, the hard things. That's what he's pointing to in verses 2 to 4. There's another sort of trial, very similar, some overlap, but it's a little bit different in verses 9 to 11. Second kind of trial. Another test. This I'm just going to call the contrasts of life. He points us to one kind of contrast in in a lot in life, where you find yourself in life. May or may not be hard, feel hard to you, but they are sort of... what your life in the eyes of others is defined by. What will your heart do with those circumstances? He chooses the rich and the poor. It's one of his favorite topics. He's going to come back to it several more times in the letter. We're going to go deep on this several more times in the letter. Here, commentators have argued that, that he's pointing to the rich and the poor as an example of something bigger, as an example of other patterns just like this, the contrast in life. Here's the way one guy put it. He says that he could have chosen here, in verses 9 to 11, any of life's contrasts. Loneliness and companionship. Long married life and unexpected bereavement. Hope fulfilled and hope disappointed. Work and unemployment. These are the endlessly varied testings which make the colors in the tapestry of each life. Family life and childlessness. Marriage and singleness. Health and illness. All the contrasts of life. They're a test for your faith. 
Now let's look at the contrast he's chosen to give us in verses 9 to 11. He's chosen riches and, and poverty. He says in verse 9, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. What's he say? Here's the test. If the lowly brother, the poor man, if he is attached to and defined by money, then that poor man, that lowly brother, will live in despair. He will live a shamed life. He will live a broken life. James is saying, the lowly brother, the one who, if his circumstance in life defined him, would be broken and ashamed and despairing, that lowly brother should rejoice, should boast in his exaltation. Something else defines that lowly brother. Same thing on the flip side, other side of the contrast. Now, if the rich man is defined, if his life is defined, if his heart is mostly attached to the wealth that other people see when they look at him, the envy that other people feel when they see his life, the respect or reputation he feels he gets from his wealth, if that's what his heart loves, well, then that guy will boast in his exaltation. He is the mighty of the earth. People look at him and they want to be him. But James says, let him boast, let him celebrate, let him rejoice in his humiliation. Because just like the flower of the grass, it's all going to go away. So the guy who's rich, if his heart is attached more to God and his promises than to the circumstances or contrast of life that everyone else sees, then he would exalt in his riches. James is saying, exalt in the fact that they're all going away. Exalt in your humiliation. Rejoice and boast in that, in the fact that you have nothing that's going to last except God and his goodness to you. He's talking about the contrast of life as opportunities to show your center, to show who you're with, to show what defines you, what your heart will love. Again, rich and poor is his example here. Plug in any number of other examples. Contrast in the circumstances of life. Are those unique circumstances going to be what you rejoice in or boast in? Or are you going to boast in a new identity that changes everything? That makes the lowly brother feel exalted because his inheritance is heaven. And the rich brother feel humiliated, counting nothing for his riches because he knows they're all going to be stripped away. Our circumstances, our contrasts in life are a test of what we love. And whether we love what will last and therefore rejoice no matter how little we have, or whether we love what fades away and deceive ourselves into living now for an inheritance that will perish. What would your friends say about your heart? Would they say that you live like one who knows wealth fades and falls like the flower of the grass? Is that the story that your checkbook or online banking tells? to all who might see it. One last trial. There's the trial of 
hardship in life, hard things outside of us pressing in on us that we'd rather not have in our life, there's an opportunity or a test. There's just the contrast of life, the circumstances that make us different from one another. Will we lock in on those differences? Will we lock in on what we share, an identity given as a gift from God who, made it, who has set aside an inheritance for us that will never perish? And then finally, there is the trial that is our own desires, internal trials, temptation. Same word for trial in verse 2 comes up again and is translated temptation down in verses 13 to 15. Same word, the context tells us what he's talking about. Here he's talking about not so much things that happen to you from the outside, but things that you want from the inside, things that you want that God has said are not glorifying to him or good for you. Let no one say when he's tempted, verse 13 says, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot tempt. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So where does temptation come from? I think we are tempted, part of that word, to either resent God. If we have a sin pattern in our life, it's something we know we wish wasn't there. We can't seem to, to shake it. We fight it, we push back for a while, always get beat, always get beaten down. Sometimes we can think that we can blame God for it. God could have changed what we love. God could have taken us out of this temptation. He could have made this easier. Maybe we even pray to him for help and we don't seem to be getting any help. And so we wonder, is God really able? Is he really for us? James is saying, no, that's not how it works. might seem like it. That's how it works. God is sovereign over what comes into our life, but God tempts no one. That's not where sin comes from. We might also be tempted to think that our sin comes from the things that we do that, that are not pleasing to God, that maybe we wish we could stop doing, but we can't. Sometimes we think, sometimes we'll look and blame for those things, the things that have happened to us in our life, the circumstances imposed on us by our upbringing, by experiences we had when we were young by the way we have been shaped into the per- people that we are, we can look at those circumstances and, and blame them. They programmed us like a robot to do what we do. There's no question that the things we've lived through do affect us. They set each of our challenges. We aren't all tempted in the same way, partly because we didn't all share the same upbringing. But James says, not so fast. You're not a robot. Affected by other things for sure not programmed by them. No, the the root cause and the trial that we face when we're tempted to sin is in us. It's our desires. It's the heart and what it wants. The command center for our lives is our heart. And it's active. It's not just passive. It doesn't just get shaped by other things that happen to us. It wills, it wants, it runs out for things that it desires. And James says, sin comes when desire entices us. It's a fishing image, lures. Think of a lure being thrown out into a lake and brought in to look just like a cricket so that the fish is lured and enticed. Our desires entice us as people to do things. And then when desire has conceived, now it's turned into a reproductive metaphor here when the desire gets conceived what comes out what's what's given birth is sin actions that that don't please god and sin produces death one of one of my uh, most important 
influences in my, in my life, a pastor in my life, often said when counseling people who have recurring sin patterns that they just had a hard time shaking, sometimes they're, they're, they're just frustrated and resenting God for not taking the temptation away, resenting others who've given them the temptation through upbringing. One of the things that he'll ask, ask them to carefully think and pray over is simply, if you could imagine a life where you didn't look at porn anymore, would you want that life? Desire lures us, gives birth to sin and leads to death. Our desires and how we process them, that's a test. It's a trial that all of us face. A test of faith and its genuineness. There's three trials that James is pointing us to. That's one of his main threads here and throughout the book. The things that we're going to face in life that are going to test who we are, who we're with. And the contrast, excuse me, the trials that I've just laid out for you, well, they're huge. They're, they're overwhelming, even. And James has said that they're essential to a faith that saves us. Without these trials, our faith won't do any of us any good. So now what we know is that for a faith that saves, we've got to go through trials we can't go through and come out on the other side. Unfortunately, James is not just talking to us about trials here. He's talking to us about the gifts of God that are precisely tailored to fit what we need to face these trials and persevere, to become perfect and complete lacking in nothing. I want to point you quickly towards two gifts. One of them very clearly unpacked here in the the passage. Another of them unpacked in the whole of the Bible, pointed to by this passage. The gifts of wisdom and the gift of Jesus. Two gifts that God has given to us to make sure we can survive trials that are too big for us on our own. We're told again at the top of the passage to count trial as a joy for what it's producing in us. That it's, it's making us complete so we don't lack anything. But we all know that we're not there yet. So James goes in verse 5, on the subject of what we lack, in verse 4 says the goal is not to lack anything. But if anybody lacks wisdom, and we do, verse 5 says, then let him ask God. Verses 5 to 8 show us the main gift that we need to face these trials well. It shows us what we need, why we can get it, and how we should ask for it, okay? The gift of wisdom that we've got to have if we're going to survive in trials. What we need, why, the wisdom, what it is, why we can get it, and how we should ask for it. So quickly, again, what have we said about wisdom from all, all through this series? Wisdom It's different from a law that you follow. It's different from a promise that you believe. The Bible's full of promises, full of laws. Wisdom is an instinct or a skill. Wisdom comes when you've internalized the true things God has said about himself, about what he's done, the promises that he's made to us, the character that he holds that comes out in his laws. When when all of that stuff from his word 
gets in you and you've internalized it, it becomes an instinct. And, it, and, and with that instinct, you know what to do when the, time's, when the time comes. You don't need a road map because you understand where you're going. You have taken the truth that you've heard and you've worked it into your life. Wisdom is a clarity of perspective. It's an ability to see everything that happens to you and what would be important for you to do in, in what happens to you. To see all of that in light of what's true about God and His promises and what He's asked for from us. And everything that James says in these verses requires wisdom. He's commanded us to consider that trials are a cause for joy. That's a thinking thing. We're going to need wisdom to be able to consider it, think of it that way. He's commanded us to rejoice or to boast in circumstances that most wouldn't boast in. We're going to need a different perspective for that. He's commanded us to resist temptation and deception. All of these commands are commands that require wisdom or a better instinct for life when the time comes. Remember, wisdom is an internalized truth. What's the truth that he's pointing us to that we need to internalize if we're going to know what to do when the time comes? I think we can't do better than verses 17 and 18. He's reminding us there. At the end of this long passage on trials, he's reminding us that every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from your Father. He's reminding us that we are children of God if we have faith in Jesus. That we can trust Him not to send us anything that won't help us. He's reminding us that our hearts should belong not to the fading wealth of this world, but the inheritance set aside for the children of the King. For those who, verse 18 says, are brought forth by His will. He is their Father that has given them life, and they're the first fruits or the representative inheritors of His creatures. They are the inheritors. That's who you are. You need to internalize that identity if you want to boast in your lowliness or boast in your humiliation. We need to know that sin is a challenge to identity as the children of the Father who owns our hearts. A Father whose loves we'll take on. A Father whose resemblance is inevitable in us. If we're born of Him, we will look like Him. And we'll see temptation in that light. So we've got to internalize the truth of our status as those brought into being by a Father of lights who gives everything that His children need. That's how we've got to see everything around us. That's where wisdom will come from. That's what we need. I mentioned a couple weeks ago one of my favorite books of all time is the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, This week I've been reading the sequel prequel that came out a couple of months ago, or maybe a few weeks ago. There was one section that I got to a couple nights ago where the central character who is a, a girl who grew up in this small town has gone off to the big city. It's coming home as, a, as a, a woman now and seeing life in the small town as a woman who's lived elsewhere, seeing her father as a woman who's lived elsewhere. It's just one passage where she's talking about her father, Atticus, the other central character in the book. And his effect, the effect of having him for a father on her living in the world. It's a beautiful description of what wisdom is. The wisdom that we should have if we connect with the fact that we're children of the father of lights. Here's what she says. Talking about this consciousness she developed, she realized that 
as, as she's out in the world, living in the world, she realized that she did not stand alone. But what stood behind her, the most potent moral force in her life, was the love of her father. She never questioned it, never thought about it, never even realized that before she made any decision of importance, the reflex, what would Atticus do, passed through her unconscious. She never realized that what made her dig in her feet and stand firm whenever she did was her father. That whatever was decent and of good report in her character was put there by her father. She did not know that she worshipped him. Now, some of you hear me read that passage and you think, that was not my daddy. All of us need to hear that passage and know that no human, no Atticus will ever be good enough. But that this is what it looks like to live life having internalized the love, provision, instincts, and truth of the Father who gave you life. That He will be behind every decision. That He will be filtering for you your perspective on everything you face. That He will be behind the character that you start to take on. That this Father is the one who gives wisdom by giving you His identity, His name, His likeness. So you want to be wise in the world? You need to feast your heart on what your Father is like and then you'll know what to do. What we need is wisdom. Fortunately, we're told that God wants to give us wisdom when we ask for it. That's why we should ask. It's why we can get it. Verse 5 says that God gives generously to all without reproach. I love it. Every word in there builds on this image of God. His, he's defined as the generous God. He is the giving God. It would have been a better translation of that phrase uh, many commentators suggested. He is the giving God. That's what he does. And he's the God who gives generously. It's a word for single-mindedly, with, with clear focus. He gives, that's what he does, and without strings attached. He gives clearly, totally, fully, generously. And he gives to all. There's no one of you out there who is off limits for the generous giving of the giving God. And he gives to all without reproach. You don't have to come to him sheepishly, hat in hand, knowing you've asked him so many times before, what will he say this time? I've spent down what he gave me last time. I don't have anything left. Will he hear me again? He gives to all without reproach. He'll never make you feel bad for needing him again. He wants you to come to him. He will give to anyone who asks him, but it matters how you ask him. Don't ask him in doubt. That's the last thing for wisdom. You need it. It's what we need. You can get it because God gives generously to everybody who asks him. But be careful how you ask for it. This is a, this is a verse, verse 6, that scares doubters like many of us to death. Don't ask with doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. Unstable in all his ways. Any double-minded men out there? 
What does he mean? He's not talking about intellectual doubt here. He's not talking about having questions. Lots of places in the Bible, there there are faithful people who have questions about God and who he is and what he's up to, and they're told and model for us, bring those questions to God with confidence and not fear. The Psalms are full of this kind of questioning of God. It's not an intellectual doubt. Everyone that I read agrees what he's talking about is not questions that you wonder about or that you haven't settled yet. What he has in mind is what one writer calls a moral and spiritual commitment, the devotion of our whole loyalty to the Lord. The image of a wave is helpful here. This is someone who's just sort of riding the waves, blowing along, being blown along by the wind, not sure if they're ready to commit. Hedging their bets in what they ask of the Father, not giving themselves to the Father. Be one, like, for example, there's this really nice smoker, meat smoker, that I, I've got several friends who have them. I'd like to have one, I think. But the reality is, I've never put any time or effort into learning how to be a good smoker of meat. I haven't started with a Craigslist $10 smoker and tried my hand at it. I haven't done anything to show that I really am worthy of the investment of an expensive smoker. And so you can imagine that if I was to ask someone to give me one, and they knew me well, knew my habits, knew my frame of mind right now, they wouldn't do it. Because what I want is just sort of have the option of smoking meat if the mood struck me right. I'm not committed yet to learning how to use that thing. Or maybe another analogy. If I'm, it's the difference between someone who asks for a boat because they're in the middle of a stormy sea and they've been treading water as long as they can and their arms have given out, their legs are giving out and they know if they are not given a ride on a boat, they are not going to survive. That's a person who is fully committed to what that boat would give him, to what he could get through that boat. Contrast that to the guy who thinks it'd be nice to have a boat, maybe. Maybe I'd just have one and then I could have it if I needed it. Maybe, maybe put it down at the dock, at the lake house. Never really used one before, not sure I would commit to using it, but it'd be nice to have it just in case. Well, this is a double-minded person. He wants the luxury that comes from not ever putting any work into being good at using a boat, but also the option of using a boat if the mood struck him. God won't give wisdom to somebody who's not all in who's not committed to doing what that wisdom is going to call on them to do. He gives wisdom to those who ask as those drowning in a sea that is too big for them, who know that if they don't get wisdom, they have no hope. That person, asking not because they're even 100% certain that God can give them what they need, but because they have no hope if he can't. It's him or nothing. It's him or death. Give me wisdom, if you can. It's not the, a question of doubt. Give me wisdom, so I'll have it in case I need it. Maybe I'll take it, maybe I won't. That's the doubter who won't be hurt. So we ask for what God gives us in faith when we ask as those who have no hope otherwise. And when we ask Him, when we pursue the walk that wisdom sets out for us, We don't walk that path alone. Because he has given us not just wisdom. God 
the giver of every good and perfect gift, the Father of lights, has given us His only begotten Son. Our older brother who walked the walk that we'll have to walk and did it first and did it fully so he could do it with us. Our brother who lived a life we were meant to live, who passed every test, who faced every trial and temptation any of us ever will, who went to glory through the cross, who was made perfect. Hebrews told us in the passage Brian read this morning, he was made perfect through suffering. Does that passage sound familiar? You will be made perfect, lacking nothing through the trials that are coming for you. Jesus has been there. He's your brother if you'll have him. He will walk that road with you because he's already walked that road for you. He hung on the cross because you have failed to pass the tests that were put in front of you. He has absorbed the penalty that your failure to pass those tests requires of you. And now he lives again and he lives for you. Hebrews says he lives to intercede. What he does with his life is intercede as a priest who knows what your trials are like because he's been there. He's been through all of it and he sits now at the right hand of God saying, here's what he needs. Here's what she needs. Let's give it to her. She won't make it otherwise. Let's give her what I purchased with my blood. That's what Jesus is doing with his life. He is God's gift to you if you'll have him for the trials of life that are coming. And with this gift, you will persevere until you are perfect and complete, a bride without blemish or spot, ready for the coming of her Lord. Father, that is what we want from our lives. Lives that have no explanation except that your word is true. You really are for us. You really are able to protect and provide. You really do care what our lives are like and that we have everything we need. We want to put those words to the test. So we ask you, for Jesus' sake and through Jesus, our great high priest, help us face the trials of our lives in a way that makes you appear glorious. We ask you this, our Father, in the name of Jesus our brother. Amen.